Quick disclaimer, this is Austin. If you hear this sound during the episode, I got a chair I didn't know was making noise and Kelly's pissed. But keep listening because it's a great episode and it won't happen again. At least I hope not. Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. Today, we are going to be talking about the Moody Massacre, which is actually a case that was requested by one of our Patreons, Shanice. So thank you, Shanice. Hell yeah. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Kelly. She throws her hand out at me like, say something. Say Thanks, something. Shanice. We appreciate it. Oh, geez. So this case actually happened in her hometown of Bell Fountain, Ohio in 2006. Before we get started, I want to point out that she requested this case through through our website. We do have a website. It's mamamystery.com. So if you want to request a case, you can do it through there, or you can message me on our Instagram, mama.mystery. I'm going to look at the website. I haven't seen it. So we also have some new Patreons. Ooh, we're on the home page. Look at us. <laughs> yeah, right, that, that's us, Austin. Uh, so new Patreons: Amber Kelly. Yeah. Kaylee Becerra. Hell I probably yeah. butchered that name. I'm so sorry. Lindsay Ryder. Hell yeah. Laura Brown. Oh yeah. And Lindsay. Oh, and what? Just Lindsay. I don't know her last name. It doesn't okay. say. <laughs> I, I thought it was like Ann Lindsay. Oh, no, and, and uh, Lindsay. Got it. Cool. So thank you so much to our new Patreons. Um, if you aren't aware, you can go to patreon.com slash mystery to become a Patreon. You get free monthly stickers in the mail, and you also get early access to episodes like this one today. You're got, you guys are going to get it on Thursday. Everywhere else will be on Monday. On this, on the mail, it's you get a signed, a signed thank you <laughs> note from Kelly. Yeah. Big Which deal. I'd save that. They all end up in the trash. I bet they don't. I bet they Someday do. Someday you're going to blow up. You're going to be as big as Joe Rogan. Oh, please. And people are going to be like sending your, your signed postcards to auction. Okay. Okay. Let's let's not get crazy. Um, Dream big. Anyway, we also, last thing, I want to thank you guys for the reviews. Every day I've woken up this morning, I check my email and it Every says, day you've you woken have up one this or- week. What did I say this you morning? Every day I've woke up this morning. I'm it's tired. okay. I understand. <laughs> But yeah, and then she sends them to me, and I get to smile at them every morning. Yes, I get an email that says, you have a new review, or you have two new reviews, and, and they're all good, and I'm just so thankful. People so, have been saying some really nice shit about me. Really nice, which is Which is rare. <laughs> so when common. I when I see those, it's pretty cool. It's a good way to start the day. So yeah. I wake up to like, Austin's makes me laugh. Austin gets goosebumps. Uh-huh. Those beat the ones where it's he like sure sick and tired annoying. of Austin interrupting. Husband's got to go. <laughs> yeah. You got to go. Quit listening to our shit. You know what? You're right, Sharon. <laughs> I do. I'm just going to file the paperwork this weekend. Good luck. All right. Let's get started. This is going to be a two-part case, just so you know. A two-part episode, I guess. Uh, because when I started researching this story, I actually started reading the book on it. Uh, it's called Saving Stacy by Rob St. Clair, which is where I get the majority of the information for this episode. But when I started reading and looking into this case, I was just really overwhelmed. And it got to a, to a point where I thought, I'm going to have to make this two parts. So 
today's part one, and then I'll try to come out with part two ASAP. Um, but yeah, let's get started. Pay attention, Austin, because this is wild. Okay. Okay. You, you read you like a notes? whole book for this, didn't you? I'm I'm reading it currently. It's hard to read when you have a baby that's like constantly needing something. But right. I'm getting through it, and I'm going to finish it. Right. So grab a notepad, take some notes, because I don't want you asking me about dates, and then I got to scroll all the way back to find out exactly what the date is. I'm not taking notes, and I will ask about dates. Go ahead. Okay, so Scott Robert Moody was born in Bell Fountain, Ohio, on August 12th of 1986 to parents Steve Moody and Sherry Schaefer. So Bell Fountain is about 48 miles northwest of Columbus, Ohio. And here's a fun fact. Bell Fountain is the home of the first concrete street in America. That's pretty cool. According to Google. I think that's true. I mean... Everything you see on the internet is the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So Scott lived primarily with his mom, Sherry, and his sister, Stacy. Scott's dad, Steve, lived nearby with his wife, Audrey, and his, her, her kids, and then his three sons. So there was Nikki, which was uh, Audrey's daughter, and then three sons, Christopher, Adam, and Stephen, so all half-siblings. Sherry and Steve were married when Sherry was only 17 years old, and Steve was 20 years old, so they were really young. They met at the Logan County Fair, and even though Sherry's family was really protective and honestly kind of disapproving of her relationship, they welcomed Steve in, they gave him a job on the family farm when they got married, and they also went ahead and housed them on one of the houses on their property. See, Wilma, Sherry's grandmother, was very controlling. She owned this huge family dairy farm and was adamant that this farm stayed in the family. But she felt this, like, distrust towards her daughter and granddaughter's capability to keep the farm running. So when Wilma, Sherry's grandmother, made her will, she made it very complicated. She left the farm to her daughter, Cheryl, as a life estate and put a clause in the will that Cheryl had to pass it down to Sherry. But since Sherry couldn't hold a job and was irresponsible, Wilma included another clause that Sherry wasn't allowed to sell it either. Sherry would have to pass it down to her kids, Scott and Stacy, and then they could do whatever they wanted with it. Wilma hoped that Scott would be a farmer and take over when the time came. That was just her hope. This confusing will was an attempt to maintain control over the farm and the family and ensure that the family's good name would keep its good reputation, right? She wanted her estate to kind of live on. Yeah, which, I, which I understand. Yeah. But, I mean, you also can't predict the future. and you, She didn't even know how Scott and Stacy would turn out because they were so little at the time. Mm-hmm. So to really, like, hold on to that control, it's kind of like, girl, you got to let it go a little bit. Loosen the reins a little. I don't know, though. A year after Steve and Sherry were married, they had their first child, a son named Scott. Three years later, they had Stacy. But when Scott was three and Stacy was six months old, Sherry filed for divorce from their dad. Their divorce was so ugly, it's been called one of the most contentious divorces in Logan County. They both accused each other of everything under the sun. Sherry would constantly call Child Protective Services to file complaints against Steve, But officials would investigate and find no substance to her claims. She'd call claiming that 
Steve would physically and sexually abuse their daughter, Stacy, but they never found evidence of that, and Stacy couldn't confirm any of those claims. So the charges eventually had to be dropped, and they just closed the, the cases. So even after their divorce was finalized, the problems continued to persist. She withheld the kids from their dad. She did her absolute best to drive a wedge between them, which I'm sorry, just a quick pause. I think that is the most selfish thing you can do. When your reason behind it is because you don't get along with their dad, that is so freaking selfish. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Sherry ended up getting involved in a couple car accidents. Nothing too serious or major, but it left her with these chronic shoulder issues and shoulder pain that she took prescription pills for. But when the doctors refused to keep filling her script, she sought out other drugs to ease the pain. Unable to hold a steady, well-paying job, Sherry became more interested in her grandma Wilma's estate and what her position was within the estate. So when Sherry started digging into the financial records, she found that her mom, Cheryl, hadn't been paying taxes on the property, resulting in more than $20,000 in owed taxes. It's also been reported, though, in other places that she owed more than 50000 in unpaid taxes. So I'm not sure which amount is actually correct, but either way, it's a lot. Cheryl also hadn't been collecting rent from tenants on the property because there was, like, multiple little homes on the property that people could rent from. Um, she wasn't collecting rent. She was, I think, anywhere from, like, 12 to 24 months behind on oh rent. Oh, gosh. Just letting people live there for free. And then some of the buildings on the property were falling apart. The equipment was falling apart. Like, it just was not getting taken care of. So Sherry motioned within the courts to remove her mom as an executor of Wilma's estate. And this started a big fight within the family. And it went back and forth for like 10 years. Finally, Wilma's estate was settled in early 2005. And the land was supposed to be split up with plans set in place for the sale of each property when a certain time came. And each one was like, it's not to be sold for any less than this and I mean, it took forever, but they finally figured out a plan. During that span of time, Sherry married a man named Steve Wolf. They divorced within five years. And Sherry's kids, Scott and Stacy, in the midst of all this chaos, still grew up to be relatively good kids, both involved in Future Farmers of America and 4-H clubs. They maintained the farm. They worked on the farm. They exhibited their dairy cows and fairs. Scott was most involved, though, showing cattle, winning several trophies and ribbons in the Logan County and Ohio State Fairs. He was described by teachers as a clean-cut boy who wanted to eventually grow up to be a farmer, continuing the family's business. Stacy grew up to be this beautiful young girl who had this really sweet, innocent, kind of vulnerable, I think, demeanor. She had a really kind smile, lots of friends. So it seemed like Wilma's plan was maybe coming to fruition, with Scott intending to take over when he graduated. So speaking of Scott's graduation, he was due to graduate on the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend in 2005. And that weekend, locals in the town, this is a pretty small town, okay? The class, was, the class size was pretty small. And locals in the town were all celebrating with graduation parties, family get-togethers, You know how it goes. Mm -hmm. 
But on Sunday, just hours before the ceremony was set to begin, 911 receives a call from a girl named Nicole. Nicole tells dispatchers that her stepsister Stacy just called her to say that she and her mom had been beaten up and her mom isn't waking up. So Nicole told dispatchers that she went to the house to try to wake Sherry, but, quote, couldn't get a pulse and couldn't wake her up. And as Nicole walked through the house, she discovered more people in the house, all deceased. She said, quote, oh, my God, there's one in the living room. There's another one on the couch. I mean, it was like every room there was a surprise on who was in the room. Everyone was dead. I mean, I just can't even wrap my head around how traumatic that would be. Mm-hmm. When paramedics arrived, they found Stacy at the kitchen table. She was covered in blood. Her eyes were unfocused. Her face was swollen and bruised. And according to their report, there were no other survivors in the house. Scott was found with a rifle within arm's reach of him between him and his girlfriend at the time, Paige. But according to Detective John Stout, who's going to be a major player in this whole story, okay, Scott's right hand was on the rifle with his right thumb through the trigger guard and on the trigger and the tip of the barrel resting on his right shoulder. When Scott and Stacy's dad, Steve, arrived, he asked Detective Stout where the grandparents were, who lived just a quarter mile down the road. And he thought surely they would have seen all the commotion and come to investigate, right? They all live on the same property. He thought it was bizarre that they weren't there. So Detective Stout said he thought they were out of state. And Steve told him, no, they're back. And if they're not here, something is wrong. So Detective Stout sent an officer. Do you have a question? No, I was just stretching. <laughs> just keep reading. I'm listening. This is getting good. You don't ruin it. Now people are pissed right now. All right. So Detective Stout sends an officer to check on them. Stop raising your hand. I'm it's stretching my arms. Stop. People are going to get pissed about this. They're going to leave a crappy review. Austin, stupid, and stretches. All right, please continue. Pick up from the sentence before, though. This is getting good. Come on. All right. Detective Stout sends an officer to check on them. Ten minutes later, an officer's voice comes over the radio saying that Gary and Cheryl Schaefer were dead on the floor of their kitchen. They were just in the middle of breakfast. Toast was laying on the top of the toaster. Eggs were next to the stove waiting to be scrambled. And their morning medication was still sitting on the table waiting to be taken with breakfast. So they were clearly just ambushed in the middle of their morning routine. So the sheriff's initial assumption of of the shooting was that Scott woke up in a rage, went to his grandparents' house, shot them, then reloaded the rifle, came back to his house going from bedroom to bedroom, shooting everyone in the house. Sounds like bullshit. Right? I mean, that sounds like really far-fetched. It does, but just wait. He believed that Scott first shot his classmate, Megan Karras, who was due to graduate that weekend with Scott. She was laying on the couch in the living room. Then shot his mother, Sherry, who was up in her bed, neatly tucked in, but shot behind the ear. Because when she heard the gunshot, she didn't wake up or move? Then shot his own girlfriend, 14-year-old Paige Harshbarger, who was laying in bed beside him, which we'll get to that in a minute, too. 
then shot his 15-year-old sister, Stacy, twice before finally shooting himself twice. He also alleged that Scott shot them all while they were sleeping. So again, like you said, how did nobody wake up if that was the case? Mm-hmm. I have so many problems with this theory that they the sheriff came out with. And he was so quick to come out with this theory. He announced it within days of this incident. And I'm just thinking to myself, what about innocent till proven guilty? Like, how are you just going to announce that you think Scott, you're, you're certain Scott was behind this? Mm-hmm. I have so many questions. If Scott was shooting everyone with a 22 caliber rifle, which is the weapon that was used. Which a 22, I mean, I don't know. If there's any gun nuts listening, I don't, I'm not claiming to be a gun nut. But I'm just saying a 22 isn't like the most powerful rifle in the world. It's a pretty small bullet. Is it? Travels very far, travels very far, but terrible like home defense weapon because it'll go through walls and shit. But it's, I mean, like it's not a whole, like there's people who would say it doesn't have much stopping power. That's like a big gun thing to say. Like, Mm -hmm. like my daily carry, I carry a 380 and people will be like, a 380 ain't got no stopping power. Okay. I think it does more than you think, but okay, a twenty two is even less than that. Between the eyes, I think it was. Yeah, a twenty two is even less than that. So, like the fact, I don't know, it just seems kind of random. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Is it very loud? It's I mean, gonna, any I mean, gun is going to be loud. It's going to have think. some noise to. It. I mean, if you shoot a twenty two in your house, yeah, it's going to be loud. I don't know. That's not going to be as loud as an AR fifteen, but yeah. No, but that's a good point because throughout the book, it was mentioned that there was hearsay back and forth. Did Scott? Have guns? Were there guns in the house? Did he shoot guns? Whatever. And people had different answers. Yes, he shot guns, but he only had shotguns. No, he didn't shoot guns. He was scared of guns. Yes, he had a twenty-two, but it was just to shoot bunnies or squirrels on the property or whatever. So I get conflicting statements on that. But regardless, it had me wondering how loud a twenty-two caliber rifle would be. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, if that was the case and everyone's getting shot while they slept, how did nobody wake up? And why were there no signs of struggle? Why was everyone still in their beds? Right. And why would he shoot his girlfriend, then his sister, and then go lay back down next to his girlfriend to shoot himself? Twice. He shot himself twice. And I know, before anyone comes for me, I know that there are times when someone tries to commit suicide and they fail the first time. So they finish the job with a second shot. It's Mm -hmm. rare, but it does happen. However, we'll get to the details of that in just a minute that proved why this is impossible. When I just Googled just for the heck of it, 22 caliber stopping power for Mm self-defense, an article comes up and like the, there's a bunch of data and a summary of data, but it says, um, it says, I promise you if I were to grab a gun right now for self-defense, knowing that I would be getting into a gunfight, 22 would be very low on the list. Here is a summary of the data of why I say this and the heart of the controversy. And it goes on this whole article to explain it. So I'm just saying that's kind of random, in my opinion. Yeah, and there were other guns in the house. It was reported by multiple people that there was a shotgun next to the microwave in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So why not use that if you're really trying to go on a rampage. I don't know. There's so many questions. There's a lot of articles here that say people use a 22 for self-defense. It says it doesn't have stopping power, but it has killing power. I don't know. I just random to me. I don't know, know anything. Go ahead. So, of course, this raises the question of why. What happened to, 
to set Scott off if he was the one to do this, right? So everyone's starting to question what was happening in the days leading up to this massacre. The night before the shooting, Scott and Stacy had some friends over at their mom's house. And their mom's house was known as a very like laid-back house. Sherry would let people come and party. They could drink. She wouldn't let them drive home if they had drank too much. But she would provide them beer sometimes. Like She wasn't a regular mom. She was a cool mom, that type, okay? So they had this little after party for the graduation parties earlier in the day. And a few of those friends that were at this after party ended up spending the night, but one left early in the morning Sunday to go to work. And uh, this, this friend that left early in the morning said that he left between 6 and 7, and everyone was still asleep at the time. So we know that by 6 or 7 in the morning, everyone is still alive. So the kids all had fun the night before. They rode four-wheelers, drank beer together. They all recalled that Scott was acting fine. Nothing was out of the ordinary that night. Nothing happened. Nobody could give any insight as to why Scott would snap, nor could they believe the news when police implied that he was responsible for it all. In fact, Brett Davidson, which is one of Scott's best friends, said, quote, I played pool with him for I don't know how many hours, and he just acted like himself. I know I'm lucky I left. I could have ended up dead like the rest of them, end quote. So when Stacy was finally coherent enough to be interviewed by police, she told them that when she woke up, she was presented with a gun in her face. She tried to get away, but the shooter shot her in the back of the neck. She then heard two more shots before the shooter came back and shot her a second time, this time in her face. Miraculously, Stacy survived this attack. And when I say miraculously, I mean it is a miracle that this girl is alive. The bullet severed a main artery to her brain, damaged nerves in her vocal cords, shattered a vertebra in her neck, and caused massive blood loss. It was a, a miracle she was alive, let alone able to walk and eventually talk. And function. That's wild. Yeah. What, like, a horrible thing to live through. Oh, my God. I, I cannot imagine. So You when, better not end up telling me that she did it all, and this is going to be, like, that crazy-ass case with the all. Mexicans and the, the, the two Mexican Sherry women took Pini. me. Ah, oh, it's nutcase. No. What a bunch of nutcases. No, this is not that. I promise you. Okay. When she regained consciousness, she tried to get up, but had a really hard time staying upright due to all the blood that she lost, of course. She went into check in her mom's room, found her mom in bed, but couldn't wake her up. She noticed, though, that her mom had two black eyes. So I think just in her her confusion, she just thought her mom was beaten up, didn't realize that her mom had been shot. Mm -hmm. So she goes downstairs and ends up passing out in a recliner in the living room. When she woke up again, she noticed her friend Megan was laying on the couch in the living room, and Megan was laying on her side with a blanket on top of her. I mean, that's where she fell asleep. So when Stacy tried to make, uh, when she tried to wake Megan up, Megan wouldn't wake up, and I don't know if she just assumed she was still sleeping, but Megan was dead on the couch. So exhausted and confused from the blood loss, the shock, the trauma of the situation. Stacy went back to her bed and laid down, but something inside her told her to call for help now or it's going to be too late. And I'm so glad that that voice said something to her because she's absolutely right. 
She finds her mom's phone, calls her stepsister, Nikki, and remembers telling her that they'd been beating up, beaten up because she noticed that her mom had those two black eyes and she didn't know what the hell was going on. Nikki would tell investigators that Stacy told her, quote, there was an older guy with gray hair standing there with a gun and I tried to push the gun out of the way, end quote. So this is the first thing Stacy tells Nikki, okay, and it is very important. After paramedics arrive and take Stacy to the hospital, Stacy is informed that her mom, Sherry, her brother Scott, and her two friends, Megan and Paige, all passed that morning. And they didn't tell her right away. They waited until she was, you know, recuperated enough to take that information. But she had no idea until they told her. But then to add to Stacy's shock, her grandparents, Gary and Cheryl, down the road were also killed. And oh my goodness. Can you imagine getting all that information? Like, imagine getting told everybody in your life is dead. Mm-hmm. That's freaking heartbreaking. And that you're the only survivor. That you were almost killed, too. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, you made it. Insane. So at that point, Stacy was in no condition to be interviewed yet by detectives. So they go back to Nikki for more information. And Nikki told them that Scott and Stacy did not have a good relationship with their dad or his wife, Audrey. She also told them that Sherry was currently dating a guy named Dave Cusick. So detectives bring in this guy, Dave Cusick, for questioning. And his alibi seems airtight because on the night of the shooting, Dave was at home with his wife of 18 years. Sherry's boyfriend, Austin, are you paying attention? Yeah, I'm paying attention. What are you talking about? Dave was married, and he's, like, having this relationship, and he's like, oh, yeah, I wasn't there with my girlfriend. I was at home with my wife. That's crazy. Okay, I guess I didn't pick up on the fact you it was a... You were paying attention. I, I get it. That's wild. Keep going. Be quiet. Quit putting me on blast this episode. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm going to hang up. So he tells them that he and Sherry had been seeing each other for about three years and got along really well, that the last time he saw her was the night before the shooting. Sherry had been telling him how excited she was because she finally got approved for this loan to finally buy her share of the farm. And he eventually had to leave to attend a party with his wife and claims that he and his wife were at this party until about 2 a.m. when they left to go home and go to bed. So as more witnesses came forward of people who were at the Schaefer house the night before, another one stood out named Jason Southerly. Now, this one is kind of complicated, so bear with me. Jason Southerly dated a girl named Misty Martin, okay? Misty's dad rented one of the farmhouses on the Schaefer's farm. In fact, Misty's dad, John Martin, had been romantically involved with Sherry at one point, and they even lived together at one point, but they eventually broke up. John's daughter, Misty, however, still lived on the farm, and Jason would go to her house, obviously, and he became acquainted with the Schaefers and the Moody kids, and when he met Stacy, he thought she was really cute. Eventually, Jason and Misty split up, so he tried to go after 15-year-old Stacy, but she was not interested, so Jason gets with Stacy's mom, Sherry, instead. So the whole switcherooski. Oh my god, it's like this small town. I mean, it is a small town, I guess. Mm-hmm. So after Sherry's boyfriend Dave Cusick left that Saturday night to go be with his wife, she had Jason over, and they stayed up until about three in the morning. 
I'm sure they were just talking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, detectives asked Jason about Scott and his demeanor that evening. And he said Scott didn't get drunk because he didn't want to walk down the graduation aisle the next day with a hangover. So then they asked Jason if he knew Sherry had a boyfriend by the name of Dave Cusick. And he said, quote, I've never met the guy, although he scares me. He's into drugs big time. He's probably a dealer. This guy is pretty rough. He has another woman that he just had a baby with. In fact, he just started accusing Sherry of messing around with other people. Sometimes I worried for her safety, end quote. Also coming out of the woodwork to offer their two cents was Cheryl Garland Briggs, the director of a counseling office in town. She told detectives that three months prior to the shooting, Sherry went in asking for guidance in how to deal with her son, Scott. She told the counselor that she was having issues with Scott and she wanted to know how to safely get him out of the house. She told the counselor that he was extremely violent and angry but didn't clarify what he was angry about. And it's also worth noting that Scott at this point was starting to call his mom Sherry instead of mom. And there were multiple times where Scott would go from living at Sherry's to living with his grandparents and then they'd kick him out. So he'd go back to Sherry's. He was kind of like bouncing back and forth. Um, He was a teenager. Teenage years are really rough. I mean, I don't know how it was handled, but is that enough of a motive or evidence to believe that he would kill his whole family? I don't think so. And just my opinion. But I agree with you. You can see, though, that we're getting these different theories from all these different people and the stories quickly getting really convoluted. So Scott's ex-girlfriend, Amanda Arthur, she also comes forward to talk to detectives. She tells them that they dated for almost a year but broke up because Scott had anger issues. They could be laughing and joking one minute and then the next he would just flip out in a rage. Or sometimes he would just randomly call her crying for no reason. So obviously he was struggling with something, just didn't know how to cope. Maybe it was the pressure of graduation or maybe it was because he was working hard for his grandparents. I mean, he's doing like a lot of physical labor on this farm and maybe it's the pressure of knowing that he's got to run the farm. Maybe he didn't want to run the farm deep down or maybe it's because he's not getting along with his mom because his mom is acting more like a friend than a mom. I mean, who knows? I, I just, I'm trying to put myself in that situation as a teenager, like sometimes it's, sometimes it's hard enough being a teenager by itself without saying, maybe, having, maybe it's cause he's a hormonal teenager. Exactly. Without having all these other influences, mm-hmm. it's hard to tell. But Amanda did say that after graduation practice, she and Scott talked for a moment and that Scott told her he was happy with his new girlfriend Paige, and that he was glad she was with someone that made her happy too. And they hoped that they could just get along and still be friends. But by far, in my opinion, the most important witness was Roger Tangerman, who lived on the property in one of the houses. He told Detective Stout that he remembered looking out his window early Sunday morning and seeing a car pull into Gary and Cheryl's driveway. Two men got out. One went to the front door of the house to knock on the door, and the other, a gray-haired man, went around the side of the house toward the barn. He remembered thinking it was unusual that this gray-haired man was only wearing a T-shirt because it was chilly that morning. It was like in the 40s that morning. 
So then Roger said he made himself a cup of coffee, and when he went back to the window to look outside, he saw only one man get back into that car and drive away. Detectives never asked Roger what time it was when he saw these men at the Shaver's house, nor did they ask for any other details, like what color was his shirt? Was it blue? Because Stacy said that it was a gray-haired man in a blue shirt that shot her. They didn't ask him any of those questions. Unbeknownst to detectives at that time, John Martin, Misty Martin's dad and Sherry's ex, also saw a gray-haired man in a blue t-shirt walking across the back of his farm towards Sherry's house that Sunday morning. But whether or not he told detectives, whether or not detectives followed up on that tip, it's all unknown because he admits that he was scared to come forward with that information. Well, why was he scared though? In addition to John's recollection of events, Rita Price owned this little cafe in town and it was open on Sundays. It was like one of the few places in town that was open on Sundays. So this was one of those cafes where a lot of the locals would come in every morning and just shoot the shit. Everyone kind of knew each other. They felt at home in this cafe. On the morning of the shootings, a customer came in asking why the Schaefer's Road was blocked off by police. So Rita calls her husband and puts her husband puts the phone up to the police scanner. Rita and some of the customers in the cafe all heard on the scanner that someone was being chased across the road from the crime scene. But that was the last anyone ever heard of that. Multiple people heard that come across the scanner, but it was never brought up again in any reports or anything. So one of the customers wrote a letter to the Bell Fountain Examiner raising questions about the investigation and the competency of the investigators. This customer later got a message on their answering machine warning them to keep their mouth shut. What? Somebody in the system is in on it. Oh, Austin. Oh, man. So at Scott's funeral, the funeral director who embalmed Scott pulled Steve, Scott's dad, aside and told him, quote, I've been doing this for years and I've handled several suicides. Based on what I know, Scott using a rifle, the entry entry wound behind his ear, there's just no way Scott could have shot himself, end quote. Every victim in this massacre was either shot in the temple or right behind their ear or neck. These were kill shots. Almost every shot was a close contact or a contact shot. Stacy was adamant that she saw the shooter standing over her before he shot her. Then heard two more shots before the shooter came back to shoot her one more time. She did not remember any shots after that. And she repeated this same story over and over. If that last shot she heard was the one that hit her, Scott could not have done this because she would have heard him shoot himself twice, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing about her recollection of the story is it never wavered except when investigators were pushing her to believe that it was Scott. They were almost like putting it in her mind that no, all the evidence points to Scott, that Scott did this. Are you sure it wasn't Scott? Like really berating it into her. So the only time she would ever waver was when she was feeling pressured by the detectives that maybe she was wrong. Maybe her memory was failing her. And this is how you often see failed, or I'm sorry, false confessions by people admitting to a crime they didn't do. 
a lot of the times is because of these mind games. So another thing that raises questions is that Scott's position on the bed was very concerning for multiple reasons. So Scott was found laying on his bed, which was just a mattress on top of a box spring mattress. So there was no bed frame. It was very low to the ground. And he laid towards the end of the bed. You can find this picture on the internet. It's not, you you don't see his whole body. You only see from like right below the knees to his feet. And you see like his messy room. Quick timeout. Kelly's pissed at me because my chair has been making lots of noise for the mic and I did not know that. So I apologize to everybody and my wife. Please continue and I will not move my chair. Okay. Um, On another note, that request a case button on our website, I'm also requesting for a new co-host. So go ahead and send in your applications through there. Yeah, right. Okay, so anyway, the mattress was really close to the floor, okay? Not a lot of room. His jeans were shoved up towards his knees, and above his head were streaks of blood, as if he was dragged towards the end of the bed, right? He also had white socks on, no shoes, But his white socks were clean with no evidence of blood or dirt from traveling to his grandparents' house and back. And also, I mean, I'm not trying to be judgy here, but in a lot of the pictures of the house, it's a really dirty house. Like, the floors are pretty dirty. How are his socks still white? white? Yeah. So are we just supposed to assume that he went over to his grandparents with his shoes on and then took his shoes off when he got home from his grandparents before he shot everyone else? Or did he shoot everyone and then take his shoes off before he shot himself? Like, Put a clean pair of socks on and then shoot himself? Right. Also, Scott's thumb was in the trigger guard That of didn't make any sense when you said this earlier. How could this have been possible with an expected recoil of the rifle? And also, let's talk about Scott's two entry wounds. The first bullet entered behind his left ear, okay? The first bullet behind his left ear. But according to experts, the tip of the barrel had to have been at least 8 to 12 inches away from his head. The tip of the barrel to the trigger measures about 23 inches. So how on earth is so far-fetched to believe that Scott would hold a rifle on his non-dominant side with his non-dominant arm... Stretched out to shoot himself. Yes, 8 to 12 inches away from the back of his head and then shoot himself. Then reposition his entire body to the end of the bed so he could shoot himself a second time through his mouth. It's It's like saying that he shot himself in the back of the head with a bow and arrow. Exactly. Austin, that's exactly what it's like. That's that ridiculous. It's that ridiculous. He clearly looked staged. So who would have staged him? A cop. That is what we will discuss in part two next week on Mama Mystery. Mama. Stay tuned. Mystery. Out. <laughs>